welcome to Over in Smith, a podcast where me and a guest read a H.P. Lovecraft story, um, and we also like talk about it. Uh, with me today is a person who came from outer space. It's Faith. Yeah. Hey! So, so we're doing up? this a little bit out of order, uh, mostly just because I wanted to jump to this story, and uh, who gives a fuck besides me? Um, <laughs> right? Yeah, so we are going to be reading Color Out of Space. Woo! Well, the color out of space, I should say. And it is... The color. It's not just any color out of space. It is... Very good. It's a very good story um, that I don't think it's nearly as much play than, like, you know, uh, Dagon or C- the Call of Cthulhu or or um, Mountains of Madness and stuff like that. Um, but it does, I think, have some of Lovecraft's best work in it. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so uh, to kind of just talk about talk about it in a little bit. It was first released, well, sorry, it was written in March 1927. Pretty much began writing this immediately after writing his previous short novel, The Case of Dexter Ward, which is also a very good one. And he was trying to create like a truly like alien life form, so he drew inspirations from numerous fiction and nonfiction sources. Uh, It first appeared in the 1927 edition of Hugo Gertzbach's science fiction magazine, uh, Amazing Stories, and it became one of his most popular works. It remained a personal favorite of his short stories, and it was adapted multiple times. The latest one uh, was called Color Out of Space. It starred Nicolas Cage and everything, and it's a very good horror story. It spooked me a lot, and um, we are going to uh, be doing what me and Faith dubbed a Color Out of Space-a-thon. We're going to look at three different adaptations um, and release like a little just a little story, I mean, episode on each one. Uh, this one's going to be the longest, of course, because it's the whole story, but um, but we're going to kind of compare the adaptations and, you know, what they do better, if they do worse, or, you know, or if they do about the same. Yeah, Lovecraft was basically just just didn't like that a, a lot of other like aliens and other other works were like too human. <laughs> uh, and his goal was and Fair. his goal was basically to make an entity that was like truly alien. And you will get to it. It is very hard to describe. It's yes. it's basically a color that is outside of the visible spectrum to humans. He got inspiration from, like, multiple places. One of them was uh, Hugo Elliott's Modern uh, Science and Materialism. It was a 1919 nonfiction book that mentioned the extremely limited senses of humans, such that of many, like, ethereal waves striking the eyes, that the majority cannot be perceived by the retina at all. And um, he also used this concept, like, previously in a 1920 short story from beyond which we will be reaching sooner than later this was one of as i said before this was one of lovecraft's like favorite short stories and critics like also pretty much said that this is one of his best best works like in 
one of the first that actually successfully blended like the blend blended like science fiction and horror. Uh, another one that I like to mention a lot is Whispers in the Darkness. Um, mm-hmm. That one does it pretty well as well. Also, the story was lauded as his most successful attempt to create something completely outside of the human experience. As a creature's motives, if any, are unknown and impossible to discern, whether or not the color is emotional, moral, even conscious. Uh, apparently, the only criticism by uh, Joshi uh, was that it was a little long. Um, yeah, I can prob I can I can 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 I can say that as well a little bit. It was a little long, but he does a lot of good work in it. And this one basically is and this one also just uh inspired a lot of other stories as well and has a couple different other film adaptations i thinking i'm think uh, apparently the color out of dark is uh set in italy i don't know if that one apparently that one was pretty well received it was in 2000 2008 i'll check that out we're not gonna we're probably not gonna cover it I think it's an Italian film. I think I've seen that one. I think yeah, it was pretty good. Oh yeah, Color Out of Dark. It it's in Germany. Oh, it's, in, it's in Germany. Okay. Yes. Yeah, that one's really good. Okay. It's all in black and white as well. I'll throw this on the pile of stuff I should watch. We're not gonna. We're probably not gonna cover it per se, unless we want to do it sometime later. I mean. I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna deny that part, <laughs> like that we can't do something later uh, with it. Or it's the colors are all muted at least, except for the color. One thing that I that I like that a lot of uh, more visual representations do is the the color out of space is supposed to be something that we don't normally see. So a lot of times it's represented in these very vibrant and like impossible in nature colors, uh, which is one of the things that I think that um, the, the Nicholas Cage, the one that came out like late last year, in 2019 dude. So yeah, the one uh, color from the dark, the yeah. German one, but yeah, that one is also it's, uh, believe it's bright pink which makes sense because pink like bright fuchsia pink is the color that our brains make when we see a color that we cannot actually like see we can't comprehend it and so it's just like but yeah that's pretty much the you know all the rambling bits that i have to say about it uh and i guess (laughs) we'll uh just get into it the color out of space the west of arkham the hills rise wild, and there are valleys with deep woods that no axe had ever cut. There the dark, narrow glens where trees slope fantastically, and where thin brooklets trickle without ever having caught the glimpse of sunlight. On the gentler slopes there are farms, ancient and rocky, with squat, moss-covered cottages brooding eternally over old New England secrets in the lee of great ledges. These are all franket now, the wide chimneys crumbling and the shingled sides bulging perilously 
below low uh, gambled roofs. The old folks have gone away, and the foreigners do not like to live there. French Canadians have tried it, Italians have tried it, the Poles have come and departed. It is not because of anything that can be seen or heard or handled, but because something that is imagined. The place is not good for the imagination. It does not bring restful dreams at night. It must be this which keeps the foreigners away. For old Ami Pierce had never told them of anything he recalls from the strange days. Ami, whose head has been a little queer for years, and the only one who still remains, or who ever talks about the strange days. And he dares to do this because his house is so near the open fields and the traveled roads around Arkham. <sighs> that's just some good. That's some good setup. Saying that's a really yeah. good setup. Like you, you do, you do Ugh. a really good job. Like this, I think what like the just first two paragraphs does is it brings you into this to area that you know sounds amazing, and then to introduce like the. Something inexplicable about it that's hard to understand, and to like mm-hmm. to bring and to like to bring that in like immediately with a second sentence is mm-hmm. it it does a good job at just saying like hey, what's about this place? What well, what's going on? Why is it so weird? Why is it so spooky? Yeah, it's a very spooky one. Apparently only one person's there because it's just like, well, I'm close enough out of it. I guess I'm little, little, little weird because of it, but that's, I'm fine. But whatever, it's fine. It's fine. And I'm going to kind of gloss over the whole like, hey, foreigners don't like this place. They're used to shit. I'm going to just gloss over that. (laughs) Yeah. Well... If you're talking about people from Scandinavia, yes. Like, you live in, like, the most inhospitable place, but fuck, they're not gonna live here. (laughs) There was once a road over the hills, through the valleys, that set straight where the blasted heath is now. But people ceased to use it, and a new road was laid curving far towards the south. Traces of the old one can still be found amidst the weeds of a returning wilderness and some of them will doubtlessly linger, even when half the hollows are flooded for a new reservoir. Then the dark woods will be cut down, and the blasted heat will slumber far below blue waters, whose surface will mirror the sky and ripple in the sun. And secrets of the strange days will be one with the deep secrets, one hidden with the lore of old oceans. All the mystery of primal earth. When I went to the hills and the vales to survey for a new reservoir, they told me the place was evil. They told me this in Arkham, and because it was a very old town uh, full of witches' legends, I thought the evil must be something which Granams had whispered to children through century. The name Blasted Heath seemed to me very odd and theatrical, and I wonder how it had uh, come onto the folklore of Puritan people. Then I saw the dark westward tangle of glens and slopes for myself, 
and cease to wonder at anything besides its own elder mystery. It was morning when I saw it, but the shadows lurked always there. The trees grew too thickly. Their trunks were too big for any healthy New England wood. There was too much silence in the dim valleys between them, and the floor was too soft, with the dank moss and matting of infinite years of decay. In the open spaces, and mostly along the lines of old road, there was little hillside, farms, sometimes with all the buildings standing, sometimes with only one or two, and sometimes with only a lone chimney or a fast-fitting cellar. Weeds and briars reigned, and furtive wild things rushed in the undergrowth. Upon everything was a haze of restlessness and oppression, a touch of the unreal and grotesque, as if some vital element of perspective or curashiro was awry. I did not wonder that the foreigners would not stay, for this was no region to sleep in. It was little like a landscape of Salvatore Rosa, a little like some forbidden woodcut in a tale of horror. Even all of this was not so bad as a blessed heath. I knew it the moment I came upon it, at the bottom of a spacious valley, for no other name could fit such a thing, or any other thing fit such a name. It was as if a poet that had coined the phrase, the, from having seen this one particular region, it must, as I thought as I viewed it, be the outcome of some fire, but why had nothing new ever grown over those five acres of gray desolation that scraw open to the sky like a great spot, eaten by the acid in the woods and fields? It lied largely to the north of the ancient road line, but encroached a little on the other side. I felt an odd reluctance about approaching, but did so at last, only because my business took me through. There was no vegetation of any kind on that broad expanse, but only a fine gray dust or ash which no wind ever seemed to blow about. The trees near it were sickly and stunted, and many dead trunks stood or lay rotting on the rim. As I walked hurriedly by, I saw the tumbled bricks and stones of an old chimney in cellar on my right, in the yawning black maw of an abandoned well whose stagnant vapors played strange tricks with the hues of sunlight. Even the long, dark woodland climb beyond seemed welcome in contrast. I marveled no more at the frightened whispers of the Arkham people. There had been no house or ruin near. Even in the old days, this place must have been lonely and remote. And at twilight, dreading to repass that ominous spot, I walked continuously back to the town by the curving road on the south. I vaguely wished some clouds would gather. For an odd timidity about the deep skyey voids above had crept into my soul. In the evening, I asked, old people in Arkham about the blasted heath and what it meant 
by the phrase strange days, which so many evasively muttered. I could not, however, get a good answer, except that all the mystery was much more recent than I dreamed. It was not a matter of old legendary at all, but something within the lifetimes of those who spoke. It had happened in the 80s, and our family had disappeared or was killed. Speakers would not be exact, and because they told me to pay no attention to the old Amy Pierce crazy tales, I sought him out the next morning. Having heard that he lived alone in the ancient, tottering cottage where the trees first began to get very thick, it was a fearsomely archaic place, and it had begun to exclude the faint miasma odor that clings about the houses that stood too long. Only with the persistent knocking could I rouse the aged man, and then he shuffled timidly to the door. All I could tell is that he was not glad to see me. He was not so feeble as I had expected, but his eyes drooped in a curious way, and his unkempt clothing and white beard made him seem very worn and dismal. Not knowing just how he could be best launched on his tails, I fainted a manner of business, told him of my surveying, and asked vague questions about the district. He was far brighter more educated than I had been led to think, and before I knew it, it had grasped quite much of the subject of any man I have talked to with Arkham. He was not like the other rustics I have known in the sections where the reservoir would be in. From him there was no protest at the miles of old wood and farmlands to be blotted out. Perhaps there would had been, though perhaps there would have been if his home laid outside of the boundaries of the future lake. Relief was all that he showed. Relief at the doom of the ancient dark valley through which he had roamed all his life. They were better under the waters now. Better under water since the strange days. And with this opening, his husky voice sank low while his body leaned forward, and his right forefinger began to point shakily and impressively. Yeah, I think what what he's doing, like at least in the setup, at least in the frame of what how the story is going to be told, because we're going to be launching into like what actually happened during the strange days soon, like setting it up as if this is like some ancient horror. Um, yes. And then realizing that it came, like, fairly recently and that no one wants to talk about it. Yeah. It changes it from something that you can be like, oh, only the old person over there even believes in it. It's something that a lot of the older people that he's talked to, like, within their lifetime knows about and probably dealt with in some way. And it, I don't know, it, it mystifies even more. Um, you get this, uh, and it's something that I think Lovecraft does really well. This, um, yes. making, like, making, like, this event, like, both very, like, possibly knowable from some people, but also, like, almost impenetrable from the outside. Um, mm -hmm. and we'll get into it a little bit more, because 
the reason why it's called Call Out of Space is because something came from outer space that was imperceivable by humans and fucked this place up. Yeah. yeah, and it's yeah, and the way that it devolves is amazing. Also, I like how this dude shows up on this man's doorstep and it's like, whatever, he's just a hick. What is he gonna do? And he starts talking to him. He's like, oh god, oh no, he knows more. Yeah. Well, we we know Lovecraft doesn't like. Uh, oh yeah, he does not like the country. No, he, he he's very against the whole idea of uh, lower class people having any brains. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah, that that was the entirety of or beyond the wall sleep. It was then that I heard the story, and as the rambling voice scraped and whispered on, I shivered again and again despite the summer day. Often I had recalled the speaker from rambling piece out scientific points which he knew only by a fading parent memory of a professor's talk or a bridge over a gap where his sense of logic and continuity broke down. When he was done, I did not wonder that his mind snapped a trifle, nor that the folks of Ar- Arkham did not speak of such of the blasted heath. I hurried back before sunset to my hotel, unwilling to have the stars come out above me in the open and the next day returned to Boston to give up my position. I could not go into that dim chaos of old forest and slope again, or face another time, that gray blasted heath where the black well yawned deep beside the tumbled bricks and stones. The reservoir will soon be built now, and all those elder secrets will be kept for- forever under the watery fathoms. But even then, I do not believe I would like to visit that country by night. At least, not when the sinister stars are out, and nothing could bribe me to drink the new water of Arkham. It all began, oh, Ami said, with a meteorite. Before that time, there had been no wild legends at all since the witch trials, and even then, these western woods were not feared half so much as a small island in the Mesotonic, where the devil held court, besides a curious stone altar older than the Indians. These were not haunted woods, and their fantastic dusks were never terrible till the strange days. Then there had come that white moon-tithe cloud, that string of explosions in the air, and the pillar of smoke from the valley far in the woods. And by night all of Arkham had heard of the great rock that fell out of the sky and embedded itself in the ground besides the well at Nahum Gardner's place. That was a house that had stood where the blasted heath was to come amidst its fertile gardens and orchards. Nahum had come to town to tell people about the stone, and had dropped in Ami's pierces on the way. Ami was forty then, and all the queer things uh, were fixed very strongly in his mind. He and his wife had gone with the three professors from Mesotonic University, who hastened out of the next morning to see the weird visitors from the unknown stellar place. 
and I'd wondered why Nahum had called it so large the day before. It had shrunk. Nahum said, as he pointed out, big brownish mound above the ripped earth and charred grass near the archaic well sweep in his front yard. But the wise man answered that stones do not shrink. Heat lingered persistently, and Nahum declared it glowed faintly that night. The professors tried it with a geologist hammer and found it was oddly soft. It was, in fact, so soft to be almost plastic, and they gouged rather than chipped a specimen to take back to the college for testing. They took it in a old pale bar from Nahum's kitchen, for even the small piece refused to grow cool. On the trip back, they stopped at Ami's to rest, and seemed thoughtful when Mrs. Pierce remarked that the fragment was growing smaller and burning the bottom of the pail. Truly was not large. Perhaps they had taken less than they thought. I like to think that this was just like a like just a big old just big old pile of ice cream fell out of the sky. But like but like a hot <laughs> yeah. version. You know, like <laughs> But like it was like hot ice cream that didn't melt. Oh, I don't like And that, also but... I'd like to say that stones do shrink. It's called erosion. Yep. Of course erosion overnight. And everything. Also, like this happened in the like the 1880s, but I'd like to imagine it happened in the 1980s. <laughs> yeah. Nahum was in a uh, crop so top, cu- uh, <laughs> wearing like really short shorts and like some. <laughs> I forget what dudes wore in that time for shoes. Oh, uh. <laughs> I just imagine him doing an ollie on a skateboard over oh, it. Yeah, he was <laughs> just like. <laughs> yeah, like I swear I was able to ollie over it, not because it's small, it was like real big when I did the ollie over, I swear. <laughs> and then they go to it, and it's like shrug, he's like, no! It was big! I'm no poser. I could, <laughs> I could ollie over really big things, like that rock used to be. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Please, 1980s color out of space, make it happen, somebody. I want to see it. <laughs> and then we could go in the future and be the 2080s. And just do it in every era. Like, just, you know. Yeah. Uh, speaking yeah. of, I'm very excited for Cyberpunk 2077. Uh, I'm very excited. Apparently, if you want to, you can just look like a goddamn robot. Guess what I'm going to look like? A robot, A robot. A goddamn yeah. robot. Goddamn robot. The day after that, this was all in June of 82. The professors had trooped out again in great excitement. As they passed Ami's, they told him what queer things the specimen had done, and how it faded wholly away when they put in a glass beaker. The beaker had also gone. Two and the wise men talked of the strange stone's affinity for silicon. It had acted quite unbelievably in that well-ordered laboratory doing nothing at all and showing no occluded gases when heated on charcoal, being wholly negative to the borax beads, and soon proving itself absolutely non-volatile to any producible temperature, including that of oxyhydrogen blowpipe. On the anvil, it appeared uh, highly malleable, and in the dark, its luminosity was very marked. Stubbornly refusing to grow cool, it had 
put the college in a state of real excitement, whereupon heating before the spectrometer, it displayed shining bands unlike any known colors of the normal spectrum. There was much breathless talk of a new element, bizarre optical properties, and other things which puzzled men of science are not wont to say, faced by the unknown. Hot as it was, they tested it in a crucible with all the proper reagents. Water did nothing. Hydrochloric acid was the same. Nitric acid, even aqua regalia, barely hissed and splattered against its torrid invincibility. Ami had difficulty in recalling all the all these things, but recognized some of the solvents, as I mentioned them in the usual order of use. There was ammonia and caustic soda, alcohol, ether, noxious carbon disulfide, and a dozen others. But though the weight grew steadily less as time passed, the fragments seemed to be slightly cooling. There was no change in the solvents uh, to show that they had attacked the substance at all. It was a metal. Though, beyond a doubt, it was magnetic. There seemed to be faint traces of figures found in meteoric iron. When cooling had grown very considerable, the testing carried out on it in glass, and it was a glass beaker that they left it all the chips in made from the original fragments of during the work. The next morning, both chips and beakers were gone without a trace. Only a charred spot marked the place on the wood shelf where it had been. All the professors told Ami, as they paused at his door, and once more, and once more they went to see the stony messenger from the stars. Though this time the sober professors could not doubt the truth of what they saw. All around the dwindling brown lump near the well was a vacant space where the earth had caved in, wherein it had been a good seven feet across the day before. It had been scarcely now five. It was still hot, and the sages studied its surface cautiously as they detached another larger piece with a hammer and chisel. They gouged deeply this time, and as they pried from the smaller mass, they saw that the core, not quite homogeneous, they had uncovered what seemed to be a side of a large colored global embedded in the substance. The color resembled some of the bands in the meteor's strange spectrums. It was almost impossible to describe. It was only by analogy that they called it a color at all. Its texture was glossy, and upon tapping, it appeared to promise both brittleness and hollowness. One of the professors gave it a smart blow with the hammer, and it burst with a nervous little pop. Nothing was emitted, and all trace of the thing vanished with the puncturing. It left behind a hollow spherical space about three inches across. And all, and all thought it was probable that the others would have, would be discoverable by enclosing the substance, wasting away. Conge conjecture was vain. So after a few tile to find additional globals by drilling, the seekers left again with their new specimen, which proved, however, as baffling in the laboratory as his predecessor. 
aside from being almost plastic, having heat, magnetism, and a slight luminosity, cooling slightly in powerful acids, possessing an unknown spectrum, wasting away in air, and attacking silicon compounds with mutual destruction as results, it presented no identifying features whatsoever. And at the end of the test, the college scientists were forced to own that they could not place it. It was nothing of this earth, but a piece of the great outside, and as such, dour, with outside properties, obedient to outside laws. That night there was a thunderstorm, and when the professors went out to Nathan's the next day, they met with bitter disappointment. The stone, magnetic as it's been, must have had some particular electrical property, for it had drawn the lightning, as Nathan said with a singular persistence. Six times within an hour, the farmer saw the lightning strike in the front yard, and when the storm was over, nothing remained but a ragged pit by the ancient uh, well-swept, half-choked with caved-in earth. Digging had borne no fruit, and the scientists verified the fact that the utter vanishment, the failure was total, so nothing was left to do but to go back to the laboratory and test again the disappearing fragment, left carefully cased in lead. That fragment lasted a week. At the end, there was nothing left of value to be learned of it. It had gone, no residue was left behind. In time, the, the professors felt scarcely sure that they have indeed seen with waking eyes that cryptid vestige of the fathomless gulf, uh, gulfs outside, that lone weird message from other universes and other realms of matter, force, and entity. That is some of the most well-written, like, lab experiments, like, lab experiments and stuff written in a story. Yes. It yes. kept my attention, which... And it was... Yeah, it was a boring... It's, like, I... Like, man, that would be so... I think, like, being back then, being like, wow, we threw this thing that, like, literally eats, like, any matter in front of it. Because that aqua... Sorry, that... What's it called? Aqua something? Well, it's also known as piranha, like piranha or whatever. Uh, something. And basically, it just eats through, like, any matter, pretty much. Like, it's oh, it's one yes. of the strongest yeah. acids ever. I think, that, like, one of the reasons why this story did so well at, like, like combining both of it is, like, you're still keep able to keep the mystery alive, even though these scientists were, like, poking and prodding at it. It was still, like, this... Mm -hmm. It was... It's something that you see in, like, really good, like, sci-fi-based horror. Like, you know, like, The Thing and whatnot. Mm -hmm. um, that a lot of, I think a lot of authors would just kind of skip over this part. Just have the person being like, yo, I don't know, it's weird. You threw a bunch of stuff at it. <laughs> I don't know, it's spooky, we threw stuff at it, it did this, and it wasn't supposed to. It's hard to make something that is imperceivable, like, kind of. Like like a color that's almost impossible to describe, like mysterious and scary, but like it does it, it <laughs> does it. Like it's like it was inside yes. this rock, and like there's just like this weird color that I could only really describe through other things. Yes, which still falls short. 
I bet a pistol yeah. shrimp would be able to see it. Yeah, they'd oh, be, yes. They'd be like, yep. yeah, that's my color. That's how I look like. <laughs> that's me. Yeah, that's, why, that's why I'm able to shoot, like, bubbles that, like, are like guns out of my claws. That's that's how I'm able to punch so hard that I boil yeah, water. Yeah, it's because I'm, uh, it's because I'm from outer space. I'm an alien. <laughs> Plot twist. It's just full of mantis shrimp. They just all compiling out. And then skitter into the sea. Um, as natural, the Arkham Papers had made much of the incident with its collegiate uh, sponsoring and sent reporters to talk to, to talk with Nathan Gardner and his family. Uh, Boston Daily also sent a scribe. And Nathan quickly became kind of local celebrity. He was a lean, genial person of about 50, living with his wife and three sons on the pleasant farmstead of the valley. He and Army exchanged visits frequently, as did their wives, and Army had nothing but praise for him after all these years. He seemed slightly proud of the notice of his place and was attracted and talked often of the meteorite in the succeeding weeks. That July and August were hot, and Nathan had worked hard at his haying in his ten-acre pasture across Chapman's Brook, his rattling wain wearing deep ruts in the shadowy lanes between. The labor tired him more than it had in other years, as he and he felt that age was beginning to tell on him. Then fell the time of fruit and harvest. The pears and apples slowly ripened. And Nathan vowed that his orchards were prospering as never before. The fruit were growing to a phenomenal size and unwanted cloths. And in such abundance that extra barrels were ordered to handle the future crop. But with this ripening came a sore disappointment for all that gorgeous array of specious lusciousness not a single one was fit to eat unto the fine favor of the pears and apples had crept a stealthy bitterness and sickishness so even the smallest of bites introduced a lasting disgust it was same with the melons and tomatoes and Nathan sadly saw that his entire crop was lost quick to connect the events he declared that the meteorite had poisoned the soil, and thanked the heavens that most of the other crops were in the upland lot across the road. Winter came. Winter came early, and it was very cold. Army saw Nathan less often than usual and observed that he began to look worried. The rest of his family, too, seemed to have grown taciturn. They were far from steady in their church-going or their attendance in various social events of the county, for this reserve or melancholy was no cause to be found, though all the household confessed now and then to poor health and a feeling of vague disquiet. Nathan himself gave the most definite statement of anyone when he said he was disturbed by certain footprints in the snow. They were the usual winter prints of red squirrels, white rabbits, and foxes, but the brooding farmer professed to see something not quite right about their nature and arrangement. He never specified, but appeared to think that they were not characteristics of the anatomy 
in the habits of squirrels, rabbits, and foxes as they ought to be. Ami listened without interest to this talk until one night he drove past Natham's house in his sleigh. On the way back, there had been a moon, and a rabbit ran across the road, and the leaps of that rabbit were longer than either Ami or his horse likened. The latter, indeed, almost ran away when brought up by the f- a firm rain. Thereafter, Ami gave Nathan's tells more respect, and wondered why Gardner's dog seemed so cowed and quivered every morning, nearly lost the spirit to bark. In February, the McGregor boys from Meadows Hill were out shooting woodchucks, and not far from Gardner's place, a bagged a peculiar specimen. The proportions of its body seemed slightly altered in a queer way impossible to describe. Its face had taken on an expression which no one saw in a woodchuck before. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> like, I can't describe it. It was like a mixture between, like, angry and horny? Like, yeah. Uh, I don't, I don't uh, quite know how to interact with this. Sometimes that's just how you gotta deal with the cosmic yeah. horror. Apparently. <laughs> I'm just both I'm both angry and horny. I don't know which one to do. <laughs> I can only feel both at the same time. When I try to feel one and not the other, I I don't know. I, I feel empty without the anger or horniness. <laughs> <laughs> it has to be both, otherwise it doesn't work. It's just how it is. The boys were generally frightened and threw the thing away at once so that only their grotesque tales of it ever reached the people of the countryside. But the shying away of horses near Nathan's house now become an acknowledged thing, and all the basis for a cycle of whispered legends was fast-taking form. People vowed that the snow melted faster around Nathan's than it did anywhere else, and in early March there was an odd discussion in Potter's General Store at Clark's Corners. Stephen Rice had driven past Gardner's in the morning and showed that the skunk cabbages were coming through the mud uh, by the woods across the road. Never were a thing such a size before, and they had a strange color that could not be put in any words. Their shapes were monstrous. And the horse had snorted at an odor which struck uh, Stephen as wholly unprecedented. That afternoon, several persons drove past to see an abnormal growth, and all agreed that plants of that kind should never to sprout in a healthy world. The bad fruit of the fall before was freely mentioned, and it went from mouth to mouth that there was a poison in Nathan's ground. Of course, it was a meteorite, and remembering how the strange men from the college found the stone to be, several farmers spoke about the matter to them. One day, they paid Nathan a visit, but having no love of wild tales and folklore, were the very conservative in what they inferred. The plants were certainly odd, but all the cabbage skunks more or less odd in shape and odor and hue. 
Perhaps some mineral element from the stone had entered the soil, but would soon be washed away. And as for the footprints and the frightened horses, of course this was mere country talk, which such a phenomenon, such as aerolite, would certainly to start. There was nothing for serious men to do in this case of wild gossip, for superstitious rustics will say and believe anything. So all through the strange days that the professors stayed away in contempt, only one of them, when given the two files of dust for analysis in a police job over a year and a half later, recalled that the queer color of the skunk cabbage had been very much like the anomalous bands of light shown by the meteor fragment in the college spectroscope, and like the brittle global found embedded in the stone from the abyss. The samples and analysis. The samples in this analysis case gave the same odd bands at first, though later they lost the property. The trees budded prematurely around Nathan's, and at night they swayed ominously in the wind. Nathan's second son, Thaddeus, a lad of fifteen, swore that they swayed also when there were no wind, and even the gossips would not credit this. Certainly, however, restlessness was in the air. The entire Gardner family developed a habit of stealthy listening, though not for any sounds which they could consciously name. They listened. The listening was indeed a rather product of moments when consciousness seemed half to slip away. Unfortunately, such moments increased week by week, till it became common speak that something was wrong with Nathan's folks. When the uh, saxifrags came out in another strange color, not quite like that of the cavage skunks, but plainly related and equally unknown to anyone who saw it, Nathan took some blossoms to Arkham and shrewd it and showed it to the editor of the Gazette. But the dignity was no more than to write a humorous article about them, in which the dark fears of rustics were held up to polite ridicule. It was a mistake of Nathan to tell them. <clears throat> it was a mistake of Nathan to tell a stolid city man about the way the great overgrown morning cloak butterflies behaved in connection to those saxifrags. April brought a kind of madness to the country folk. It began that disuse of the road past Nathan's, which led to its ultimate abandonment. It was the vegetation. All the orchard tree blossomed forth in strange colors, though the stony soils of the yards and adjacent pastures sprang bizarre growths which only a botanist could connect with the proper flora of the uh, region. No uh, sane, wholesome colors were anywhere to be seen except in the green grass and leafage. But everywhere uh, those hair-taken, prasmatic a variance of some diseased underlying primary tone without place among the known tints of earth. 
the Dutchman breaches became a thing of sinister menace, and the blood brutes grew insolent in their chromatic perversion. Ami and the gardeners thought that most of the colors had a sort of halt heart that most of the colors had a sort of haunting familiarity and decided that they reminded of the Britter Global and the meteorite. Nathan plowed and sowed the ten acre pasture in the upland lot, but this did nothing with the land around the and but did nothing with the land around the house. He knew uh, that it would be of no use, and hoped that the summer's strange growths would draw all the poisons from the soil. He prepared for almost anything now, and had grown used to the sense of something near and near him waiting to be heard. The shunning of the house by the neighbors told on him. Of course, it had been told on his wife more. The boys were better off, being at school each day, but they could not help but to be frightened by the gossip. Thaddeus, and especially since of youth, suffered the most. In bay the insects came, and Nathan's place became a nightmare of buzzing and crawling. In motions, and their nocturnal habits contradicted all former experience. The gardeners took to watching at night, watching in all directions at random for something. They could not tell what. It was then that they all owned that Thaddeus had been right about the trees. Miss Gardner was next to see it. From the windows as she watched the swollen boughs of the maple against the moonlight, the boughs surely moved, but there was no wind. It must have been the sap. Strangeness had come to everything growing now. Yet it was none of Nathan's family who made the next discovery. Familiarity had dulled them, and to what they could not see was glimpsed by a timid windmill salesman from Bolton who had drove by one night in ignorance of the country legends. What he told in Arkham was given a short paragraph in the Gazette, and it was there that all the farmers, Nathan included, saw it first. The night had been dark, and the buggy lamps faint, but around the farm in the valley, which everyone knew from the account must have been Nathan's in the darkness, had been less thick. A dim through distinct luminosity seemed to adhere in all of the vegetation. Grass, leave, blossoms alike. While... At one moment, a detached piece of the phosphorescence appeared to stir furtively in the yard near the barn. The grass so far seemed to be untouched, and the cows were freely pastured in the lot near the house. But towards the end of May, the milk began to be bad. Then Nathan had the cows driven to the uplands, after which the trouble ceased. Not long after, this change in the grass and leaves appeared. Apparent to the eye, all the verdure was going gray, developing a highly singular quality of brittleness. Ami was now the only person to ever visit the place, and his visits were becoming fewer and fewer. 
When school closed, the gardeners were virtually cut off from the world, and sometimes let Ami do their errands in town. They were failingly curious, both physically and mentally, and no one was surprised when the news of Mrs. Gardner's madness stole around. It happened in June, about the anniversary of the meter's fall. Poor woman screamed about things in the air which she could not describe. In her raving, there was not a single specific noun, only verbs and pronouns. Things moved and changed and fluttered, and ears tingled to impulses which there were not holy sounds. Something was taken away. She was being drained of something, something that was fastening itself on her. That ought to not be. Someone must make it keep off. Nothing was ever still at night. The walls and windows shifted. Nathan did not send her to the county asylum, but let her wander about the house as long as she was harmless to herself and others. Even when her expression changed, he did nothing. When the boys grew afraid of her, and Thaddeus nearly fainted at the way she made faces at him, he decided to keep her locked up in the attic. By July, she had ceased to speak and crawled on all fours. Before that month was over, Nathan got the mad notion that she was slightly luminescent, as now he clearly saw was the case with the nearby vegetation. It was little before this that the horses had stampeded, and something had aroused them in the night. There seemed virtually nothing to do to calm them, and when Nathan opened the stable doors, they bolted out like frightened woodland deer, and it took a week to track all four, and when they found they seemed quite useless and unmanageable, something had snapped in their brains. Each one had to be shot for their own good. Nathan borrowed a horse from Ami for haying, and found it would not approach the barn. It shied and balked and whinnied, and in the end he could do nothing but drive it in the yard, while men used their own strength to get the heavy wagon near the hayloft for convenient pitching, and all the while the vegetation was turning gray and brittle. Even the flowers whose hues were so strange were graying now, and the fruit was coming out gray and dwarfed and tasteless. The asters and goldenrods bloomed gray and distorted, the roses and zinnia and haylocks in the front yard were such blasphemous things that Nathan's oldest boy, Zinnius, cut them down. The strangely puffed insects died about that time. Even the bees had left their hives and taken to the woods. By September, all the vegetation was quickly crumpling into a grayish powder, and Nathan feared that the trees would die before the poison was out of the soil. His wife now had spells of terrific screaming, and he and the boys were in a constant state of nervous tension. They shunned people now, and when school opened, the boys did not go. But it was Ami, on one of his rare visits, who first realized that the well's water was no longer good, and an evil taste that was not exactly fetid, nor exactly salty, advised his friends to dig another well on high ground to use till the soil was good again. 
Natham, however, ignored the warning, for he had by that time become callous to the strange, unpleasant things. He and his boys continued to use the tainted supply, drinking it as listlessly and mechanically. As they ate their meager and ill-cooked meals, and did their thankless and monotonous chores through the aimless days. There was something of a stolid resignation about all of them, as if they all walked in half another world between lines of nameless guards to a certain and familiar doom. Hey, just wanted to pop in real quick at the end to say, uh, we're doing the second part, as you can see. Uh, this was labeled part one. The second part will be out at the same time, so just go ahead on that uh, to that one, and there'll also be the audio, the full audio book out today as well. So, um, so yeah, this is uh, this has been over in Smith, and uh, I think that meter I did something. <laughs>